So today the, uh, the message was titled, Desires from the Heart of an Apostle. Desires from the Heart of an Apostle. Why don't we open with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Lord, we are thankful uh, for your word. Lord, as uh, John writes to his child in the faith, Lord, we get to discover his heart, but we also see the heart of Christ revealed to us, Lord, and through your writing, we, we understand and know who you are. We wouldn't know otherwise, Lord, but you've revealed yourself through your word, and we're thankful to be able to have the opportunity to look at that today. And so we just pray that you bless this time, prepare our hearts, that we would be diligent to listen and be transformed. In Christ's name, amen. So some of you uh, may remember there was a college admissions scandal uh, from just over two years ago. It was called Operation Varsity Blues. And this was the scam that involved 33 parents who fraudulently paid close to $25 million to inflate entrance exams, falsely have their children recruited as athletes and bribe school officials so that their children would be able to get into some of our nation's top universities. You know, many of these students would not have been able to get into these universities on their own. And yet their parents desired for them to be a part of these elite educational institutions. There is a uh, term that's used, it's called snowplow parents. And it speaks of parents that want so badly for their children to do well, to succeed, that they will do whatever it takes to make it happen. There was an article in the New York Times, speaking of parents involved in the scandal, and it quoted psychologist Dr. Madeline Levine. And she said this, quote, the bribery scandal has just highlighted an incredibly dark side of what has become normative, which is making sure that your kid has the best is exposed to the best, has every advantage without understanding how disabling that can be, end quote. You know, when children are raised in this type of environment and they head off to school, they often aren't able to make that transition. The article continues quoting Dr. Levine, quote, one came home because there was a rat in the dorm room. Some didn't like their roommates. Others said it was too much work, and they had never learned independent study skills. One didn't like to eat her food with sauce. Her whole life, her parents had helped her avoid sauce, even calling her friends' houses before going for dinner. And at college, she didn't know how to cope with the cafeteria options covered in sauce. <laughs> now, before you, you laugh and you shake your heads in disbelief, I want you guys to ask yourselves a question. What is it that you desire for your children or your spouse or your friends and loved ones here at Cornerstone? What about your own desires? How often do we step back and look at the desires we have, not only for others, but even for ourselves? And do we truly consider how they align with Scripture? And perhaps, even more importantly, how often do we consider what God desires for us and do our desires match His? 
Desires in and of themselves are not wrong. Desires exist when something is lacking. They come from a need, and that can be a real need or a perceived need. So when our stomach grumbles, what do we need? Food. When your body is cold, what do you need? A a jacket or a blanket. So if I were to offer you a sandwich on stale, moldy bread, I probably wouldn't be able to get you to eat the sandwich no matter how attractive or enticing I made it sound. Why? You don't want to eat moldy bread. You can't be tempted to do something you don't desire to do. In the same way, our sinful desires come from a sense that we are lacking something. A temptation is the offer that sin makes to your desire to fill in the places that are lacking or apparently lacking. Our desires are our chief tempter. And all of this comes from the root of unbelief. Every time we choose to disobey the commandments of God, we are saying that we doubt the goodness of the Lord to us in that command. And not only that, but we think that what we are desiring is actually better and it will fill up what is lacking in that moment. So do we just squash every desire that we have? No. The most effective way to fight sin is to change our desires. It's good for us to have desires. There is scriptural warrant for desires. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want, now I desire you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Or Paul, after speaking a reminder into the heart of Titus through the truth of the gospel, said this in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I desire you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men. Guys, you see the example from Paul? His desires are gospel desires. His desires for the church in Philippi and, the, and for Titus are desires that are grounded on and in the truth. And these desires want only gospel prosperity for their recipients. So the question that we ask then is, what do these desires look like for us? And how can we foster these desires in our own lives but also in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what John wants to show us today. As we look at the letter of 3 John, we will see desires that flow from the heart of an apostle through the the personal conversation that he has with Gaius. And John's not going to use words like desire, but you're going to get the idea that he wants to convey his desires through his, his prayers and through what brings him his greatest joy and the commands that he gives. So, if you haven't already, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 3 John. We'll look at the book of 3 John this morning, and a little background on that. So, this letter is actually the shortest book in the Bible. It's written from John to his dear friend and child in the faith, Gaius. And it's one of the most personal and intimate letters in Scripture. Commentator George Finley, speaking of this letter, eloquently states, quote, 
These are notes snatched away from the everyday correspondence of an apostle. They afford us a glance into the common intercourse that went on between St. John and his friends and enemies, end quote. And through the Spirit, we, we really get the chance to read the mail of Gaius. And we get to see the heart of John on display. John's heart poured out really guides us in our discussion this morning and as John commends and exhorts and even condemns, we are shown the desires of an apostle for all believers. And this should serve as an example for us and and what we should desire for others and help us shape our own desires. So with that, what are these desires? Well, in the book of 3 John, we will see five desires from John for all believers that will help us walk more prosperously in gospel truth. Five desires from John for all believers that will help us walk more prosperously in gospel truth. And the first of these desires is that we would remember our position in the Father. John desires that all believers would remember their position in the Father. Observe verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. What a personal greeting. Gaius, it's me, the elder, the old man. John is likely close to 90 years old, but but more than that, he is the last remaining apostle. Writing from Ephesus, it is likely that John had oversight for the, the many churches that were in the region, and so he is the elder. And John is writing to Gaius, and it's difficult to know anything more than his name. We encounter a number of individuals in the New Testament named Gaius, but it's not likely that any of these individuals is the same Gaius in this letter. Gaius was a a very common name at that time in that part of the world. It's, I don't know, you could say it's kind of like our name Chris today. But while we may not know who Gaius is, John lets us know something about Gaius through the reminder that he gives to him. And that is that Gaius is beloved. Now your version may say dear friend or well beloved, but I really think this misses the point of the statement. It is really highlighting Gaius's position in the Father. What a way to start a letter. And this is something that we should put into practice, don't you think? How would you feel? Walking to your mailbox, receiving a card, and the first thing that you read is a reminder of the fact that you are beloved of God. How much encouragement is there in the reminder and meditation of our current standing before God? I mean, there's so much packed into this one word. We need the reminder that we as believers are chosen, holy, and loved of God. And remembering this fact causes us not only to have a a deeper love for God, but it will cause us to rest in Christ who has earned this position for us. The reminder that we are beloved of God saves us from wasting our efforts on trying to save ourselves and it frees us to love others with this same truth. And this is exactly what John does. Gaius, not only are you beloved by God, but I love you as well. And I think we really miss the emphasis that, that John is placing on this statement in its terrible English. 
But really what John is saying that I myself am loving you habitually, continuously. This letter comes from the heart of one who has an ongoing deep affection for Gaius. And he wants to remind him of the love of the Father as well as his own love for him. But not only that, John's love for Gaius is grounded in the truth, the truth. John loves Gaius in Christ, in the truth that has been revealed through Christ. We would say that John loves Gaius in the gospel. John's love for Gaius exists within the sphere of gospel truth, and it is this sphere that motivates and empowers his love for Gaius. And so John reminds Gaius of his love, and even more, he reminds Gaius of the, the Father's love for him and his position in the Father. And this love is really the, the bedrock foundation for every desire that flows from John's heart. And with this foundation set, John moves on to his, moves on to his second desire. And now, guys, as I work through this section, what I wanted to do is, kind of, is, is to give you the overall sweep of what John is saying. There's a lot in the next seven verses for us to consider, and we're not going to get into every detail, but I hope that you see the, the sense of what John is, is trying to convey. Uh, so to, to capture the sweep, we'll word the desire this way. John desires that we would embody the gospel in our whole lives. John desires that we would embody the gospel in our whole lives. And we see this displayed in the commendation of Gaius in verses 2 to 8. Look at these verses with me. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth, and I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So to embody something is to give it a tangible, visible form. John's desire is that the, the whole of our lives would give this tangible, visible embodiment of the good news of Christ. And this is exactly what we see as John commends Gaius for internally and externally embodying the gospel. Internally, Gaius embodies the gospel through his spiritual life. You see this in verse 2. John says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Here again, Gaius is called beloved. And this time it is a direct address. John tells him, Dear friend, I am praying for you. But what is it John prays for? He prays that Gaius's physical health and well-being would match his spiritual health and well-being. This is a great prayer. 
Gaius' spiritual life is such that John can desire for his physical health and well-being to match. And this should cause us to stop and think, what if someone prayed that prayer on our behalf? What if that prayer was answered? If someone prayed for you, for your physical health to match your spiritual health, and that prayer was answered, what condition would your physical body be in? How many of us would much rather that our spiritual health matched our physical health? Not so with Gaius. In this prayer, John is also praying that Gaius' spiritual life would continue to prosper. He is certainly not saying that today you prosper spiritually, and so today I pray that your physical life would match. No, John is praying that Gaius' physical life would match his spiritual life and that both would continue to prosper. Both would continue to be a tangible, visible embodiment of the grace of our Lord. But how is a soul an embodiment of the good news of salvation? The soul consists of our faculties such as reason and will and various emotions. And as our soul is saturated with the grace of God, our faculties will be controlled by this grace. And this is why in Colossians 3.23, Paul could say that slaves should literally work from their soul as for the Lord rather than men. A soul that embodies the richness of Christ is one that flows out into an external embodiment of these riches. And that is exactly what John continues to commend Gaius for. But how does John know this? How does John know that Gaius has this internal and external embodiment of the gospel? He tells us in verses 3 and 4, where John says, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. He tells Gaius he knows his soul is prospering because he is walking in the truth. And John knows that he is walking in the truth because fellow believers have returned to John and they have spread the good news about Gaius. You see, these men came back from, from staying with Gaius and they spread some gospel gossip. They were talking good about Gaius and they were doing it behind his back. Now we will see this gospel gossip taking place a few more times before John finishes the letter. Well, John makes sure to tell Gaius about this gospel gossip, and John lets Gaius know that this is his greatest source of joy. Not just hearing about Gaius, but hearing something very specific. John overflows with joy over hearing that his children embody the gospel externally in their walk. So what does it mean that Gaius is walking in truth? Well, one thing we know for sure is that it encompasses everything that Gaius is doing. It encompasses the whole round of activities in Gaius's life. This is why John continues commending Gaius for acting faithfully in whatever he does. 
John doesn't leave it at a vague comment about walking in general. The gospel gossip that he has heard has been very specific. When these men returned, they spoke to John about more than just the fact that Gaius took care of them. John's commendation is indefinite. Gaius, he says, you are walking in truth, and I know that whatever you are doing, you are acting faithfully. Your internal spiritual life and your external walk display the gospel in such a way that everything you do for the believer is faithful, especially for those you don't know. Gaius's life and actions had such an impact on these believers that they went back and they didn't just tell John, they had to tell the whole church. You see this in the first part of verse six, John says, and they have testified to your love before the church. Talking good about Gaius behind his back to John, that wasn't good enough. These believers had to get up in front of the church and spread the gospel gossip to everyone in the congregation. And this time the gossip was about the love of Gaius. And Gaius was a man who displayed the love of Christ in the entirety of his life. And John wants to make sure to commend Gaius for this and to encourage him with the good news that is spreading behind his back. So John takes the opportunity to then encourage Gaius to continue to embody the gospel by sending these believers out worthily of God. And in so doing, he would actually become a worker with the truth. You see, as we embody the grace of God in our lives, we will care deeply about those going out to spread the good news. Gaius is one who did, in fact, do this. And John forms a polite request to encourage Gaius to keep it up. You see this at the end of verse 6 through verse 8, where John says, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. John tells Gaius, please continue to send them on their way as I know you will. You see, an internal embodiment of the gospel flows into an external embodiment of the gospel, which then flows into practical acts of faithfulness on behalf of the gospel. John wants Gaius to continue to display the message of the truth in the practical work of sending these believers that come to him on their way in a manner worthy of God. In a way that would receive God's praise, in a way that is expressive of how we would render our service to God. This is or should be our desire in every act of service towards others. What a difference it would make if we all served others as though we were serving Christ. John tells Gaius that the display of the grace in his life is most beautifully seen as he supports fellow believers in the display of this grace in their own lives. These men would go out for the sake of the name, 
And they would do so only on the support they received from other believers. They would take nothing from the worldly pagan people. The good news of salvation would advance only through the, the practical embodiment of the gospel in fellow believers. And so John tells Gaius that we owe it to these men to support them. And as a result, Gaius would actually become a fellow worker with the gospel. This is an amazing, it's an amazing thought. As we, as we embody the truth in practical ways, and as a result, we actually become fellow workers or partakers of the fruit of that work. John MacArthur says this, quote, whenever we become the source of blessing for others, we are blessed. In God's magnificent economy of grace, the least believer can share the blessings of the greatest, and no one's good work will go unrewarded, end quote. So through John's commendation, we really see the desire of John that we would all embody the gospel in the whole of our lives. And the starting point for all of this is that we have a prosperous soul, a soul that is humbled by and saturated in gospel truth. And this soul then manifests itself externally in practical love towards others. Pastor Milton lays out this progression for us nicely in the gospel primer where he says this, quote, the more I experience the gospel, the more there develops within me a yearning affection for my fellow Christians who are also participating in the glories of the gospel. The greatest gift I can give to my fellow Christians is the gospel itself. I do this not merely by speaking gospel words to them, but also by living before them and generously relating to them in a gospel manner. By preaching the gospel to myself each day, I nurture the bond that unites me with my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And I also keep myself well-versed in the raw materials with which I may actively love them in Christ. End quote. So the key to actively loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, the key to embodying the gospel in the whole of our lives is to be well-versed in the raw materials of the gospel in our own lives. But guys, there is, there's one thing that can really hinder this from happening. And do you know what that is? It is pride. Pride will actively seek out and destroy any remnant of gospel embodiment that might be living within us. And so it is no wonder that this leads into the next desire that John has for all believers. The third desire of John for all believers is that we would be humble. John desires that we would be humble. Observe verses 9 and 10 with me. John says, I wrote something to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, 
He himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So John finishes commending Gaius and then he pivots here. And the tone of the letter really changes. And we're introduced to another man who we really know nothing about. Diotrephes is someone who apparently has some authority at one of the churches in the area. And John had written something to this man, and, but Diotrephes did not receive or accept the letter. And why doesn't he accept the letter? John tells us because of his pride. Diotrephes is literally the one loving to be first among them. He is the one who seeks the preeminence, the one who has a strong affection for being first. This is the only time we see this word, loves to be first, in the New Testament, but there is a a similar word that's used in Colossians 1.18. Speaking of Christ, Paul tells us this, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Diotrephes desire to have first place in everything. But in seeking the honored place, he's not only rejected John, but he has displaced Christ and sought to put himself as the head of the church. But pride doesn't stop there. No, it's not content to only have the first place. It has to ensure that it can remain preeminent. And as a result, there are progressive deeds of pride that flow out as it is allowed to take root in someone's life. We can see these deeds in verse 10, where John says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. John tells Gaius that he is going to come so that he can address the deeds of Diotrephes. The apostle is going to exercise his authority over the church by publicly calling attention to the deeds of Diotrephes. And then John lists out the deeds of Diotrephes that flow out of his desire to be first. You see, this pride in Diotrephes first manifested itself with wicked words. That is, empty talk, nonsense chatter. This is the opposite of the gospel gossip that we saw was taking place behind the back of Gaius. Diotrephes doesn't stop with nonsense chatter, though. Pride is not satisfied to just speak about others. John tells us that Diotrephes, in his pride, not only refused John from afar, but he also refused to receive any believers that were coming to him. Any of those traveling believers who were coming through town looking for support were sent away. Pride always seeks to protect its own. 
And as a result, everyone is seen as a threat to Diotrephes. And what's more is that if there happened to be anyone in the church who did want to receive these believers, Diotrephes would forbid them from doing so, and he would even put them out of the church. And that's really a mild way of putting it. The words forbid and puts out are both very physical words. The pride that had taken hold of Diotrephes' life sought only to secure its own position. And it would, do what, it would take whatever means necessary to hold on to that position. And these verbs show that what Diotrephes was doing was not something that was taking place behind the scenes quietly. No, this was a violent clash between Diotrephes and those believers in the church who were receiving and loving other believers coming in the name of Christ. You see the contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes? I mean, Gaius' life, it was patterned around gospel truth. And Diotrephes' life is patterned around gospel rejection. And this rejection of the truth paves the way for pride, not only in our hearts, but in our actions. Pride lies at the heart of every sin and dissension in our lives. And this sin is very prevalent. A.T. Robertson, he's a Southern Baptist teacher and theologian. He tells of a time that he wrote an article on Diotrephes for a denominational paper. The article was called the Diotrephes Syndrome. And in the article, he was trying to lay out the danger of men like Diotrephes who position themselves in authority of a church. And then with that authority, they manifest the progressive wicked traits that we see in Diotrephes. After the article was published, Robertson uh, said this, quote, The editor told me that 25 deacons stopped the paper to show their resentment from being personally attacked in the paper. Robertson was attempting to bless and encourage the church and to guide them in proper leadership. And 25 deacons from around the country, not at his church, from around the country, called the editor and canceled their subscription because they felt the letter was directly attacking them. This pride manifests itself in so many ways, and none of us are immune to it. Guys, if we're not breathing in the air of the glories of Christ on a regular basis, we are creating the perfect atmosphere for pride to flourish and grow. However, if we are regularly breathing in the air of his glories, if it permeates every part of our lives, we will not only build up defenses against pride, but we will also mount an all-out attack against it. In the gospel, we have no grounds for pride. We have nothing to add or contribute. Preaching the good news of salvation to ourselves, embodying the gospel in our whole lives will mortify the pride that dwells in us. And then it will keep sentries on guard to protect our hearts 
from any attacks that pride may mount. But how do we do this? How do we fill our heart and soul with the gospel to help protect us against pride? Reading and meditating for sure on the gospel. But there is another way that is critical for helping us to embody the gospel and dispel pride from our lives. And this leads into the fourth desire of John. John desires that we would mimic what is good. John desires that we would mimic what is good and in so doing walk more prosperously in gospel truth. Look at verses 11 and 12. John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, these verses really mark the purpose of John's letter. No doubt, John began his letter with these two verses in mind. He had a command for Gaius, but before, excuse me, but before he got there, he commended and encouraged Gaius with gospel truth. He warned Gaius about Diotrephes and the effects of pride, and now he transitions to help Gaius fight against that pride. Guys, this is the first and only command in the letter. This is the thing that John wanted to convey to Gaius. He tells Gaius, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, the word imitate is the Greek word mimetomai. And can you guess what English word we get from that? Mimic, that's right. I heard it. So John is telling Gaius, do not mimic that which is evil or the evil person. He just finished condemning Diotrephes and his pride, and he tells Gaius, do not mimic that. Rather, the exhortation is to mimic what is good or the good person. This is biblical warrant for all of us to mimic someone. Speaking of this, John Stott says, quote, it is natural for us to look up to other people as our model and to copy them. This is all right, the elder seems to be saying, but Gaius must choose his model carefully. As believers, we must be mindful of who we mimic. Now, it may come as a shock to many of you, but there are no originals in this building. We are all mimics to one extent or another. You know, my wife and I, we, we always joke about how much we want to be like Kumi and Lynette or Mario and Kelly when we grow up. Mimicking others is something that we all do by nature. Unfortunately, the same is true for mimicking evil. As we surround ourselves with what the Bible might call worthless fellows, we will become like them. Listen, young people, this is sage advice that I received and I try hard to pass it on to my children. 
You ready? If you hang out at the barber shop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. (laughs) Or if you prefer to hear it from the Apostle Paul, he tells us that bad company corrupts what? Good morals. But where does this come from? Where does a desire to imitate the good person originate? John helps us with this at the end of verse 11. Where John says this, The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. John is telling Gaius that the one who does good is of God, or from God, or has been born of God. And the one who does evil has not seen God. This is the moral test of every believer that John often brings up through his first epistle. The one who mimics evil, John says, has never seen God. So if to mimic evil is the result of not seeing God, then to mimic good is the result of seeing God. This was John's testimony in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where John says, Beloved, now we are children of, of God, and it has not yet not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Or you could look at Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Beholding Christ is something that has a lasting impact. It is something that changes us from the inside out. Our transforming vision of Christ is the only thing that can stir up love and truth in our hearts. And this vision of the risen Lord not only awakens our hearts to love others, but it makes us people that we or that can be mimicked. How many of us want to be mimicked? I know we all have sin. We all face difficulties and challenges that arouse our flesh. But if you were to look at your life and the patterns of thought and speech and action, is this something that is worth imitating? Is it something that you would want imitated? Or is it something you would want to imitate? If the answer is no, the only solution is to look to Christ. To preach the gospel to yourself daily. And imitate others as they imitate Christ. And this imitation of others, well, it causes John to engage in a little gospel gossip himself. As he endorses Demetrius in verse 12, observe what verse 12 says. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So on the heels of the command to mimic the good, John attests to the character of a man by the name of Demetrius. And there's nothing known of Demetrius in the rest of Scripture, but what John tells us 
is enough for us to develop a good picture of the reputation of this man. John tells Gaius that Demetrius has received a good testimony by all. That's an incredible statement. Everyone who has come into contact with Demetrius has good things to say about him. And this news, no doubt, has spread behind Demetrius's back to John. And again, we see gospel gossip taking place. People have been so blessed by Demetrius that they made sure to inform John about exactly what kind of man Demetrius was. And John makes sure to continue to spread the good word. Guys, this, this should serve as an example for all of us. John found his greatest joy in hearing about the good news spreading behind Gaius's back. And he can't wait to tell Gaius about it. It's one of the first things in the letter. Then, John has to tell Gaius about Demetrius. So when you hear someone spreading gospel gossip about someone else, not only should you jump in and join the gossip, but you should go and tell that other person what you heard. You don't have to give any names, but how encouraging for that person to hear the gospel gossip that is being spread and you get to be the one to deliver it. Amen? Okay, so in addition to the testimony of everyone, John then tells Gaius that Demetrius has received a good testimony from the truth itself. So not only do those that Demetrius encounters bear witness to his character, but so does the truth itself. The, the breadth of the gospel is embodied internally and externally in the life of Gaius, or in Demetrius, excuse me. When you look at Demetrius, you see the grace of God in action. The testimony of the truth itself shows us that Demetrius is one who shines bright with the unfading deposits of God's glory that have been attached to him. And if that isn't enough, John adds one more testimony. <clears throat> John tells us that he adds his own testimony to the character of Demetrius. In addition to everyone that speaks so highly of Demetrius and the grace of God that can be seen in his life, John tells Gaius that he can be confident on account of three witnesses that Demetrius is someone that should, he should not only receive, but is someone that he can mimic. This is the model for biblical imitation. All of us in this room are mimics to one degree or another. And we have scriptural warrant for mimicking others, but we must only mimic those that are mimicking Christ. Those that daily remind themselves and others of their position in the Father. Those that embody the gospel in their whole lives. And in so doing, they demonstrate humility. But how do we do this? How can we position ourselves so that we have these believers to mimic? Well, that's exactly what John wants to help us with in his fifth and final desire. 
the fifth and final desire of John to help us walk more prosperously in gospel truth is that we would experience peace and community with one another. John desires that we would experience peace and community with one another. And we see this final desire in verses 13 through 15. Let's look at those. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So, John closes his letter with a cliffhanger. He tells Gaius he has more to say, but he's not willing to say it with pen and ink. And we're left hanging. What else do you want to say, John? Oh, how we wish we could continue to hear the heart of the apostle. But he is not content to write anymore. John longs to see Gaius. And he even tells him that he's coming soon. And when he comes, they will speak face to face. This is really an interesting phrase. Literally, what John tells Gaius is that they will speak mouth to mouth. This is personal, intimate conversation. John will be able to pour out his thoughts without the limits and restraints of paper and pen. He will be able to inscribe them on Gaius's heart with the vividness which personal interaction the look of the face, the tones of the voice are so well fitted to produce. But until John is able to do this, he wishes Gaius peace. And I'm sure that with the discord and disunity that exists due to Diotrephes, John prays that peace would pervade that church. But really, it's more than that. This idea of peace carries the idea of shalom. The luxurious presence of everything that is needed to prosper spiritually. The commentator D. Edmund Hebert says this about shalom. It's the state of spiritual well-being which flows from the experience of reconciliation and forgiveness. But what else can supply everything that is needed to prosper spiritually other than the gospel? The gospel encourages us to rest in Christ because it is through him that we have justification and peace before God. And we experience peace because we never have to lift an ounce towards gaining or maintaining our status before God. For those of us who through faith have received redemption through Christ's blood, we have confidence that on our worst days of sin and failure, the mercy and grace of God chases us down and our standing before the Father remains unchanged. That is true Shalom. That is the luxurious presence 
of everything needed to prosper spiritually. But how best can we experience the fullness of this peace? In the friendship of fellow believers. The last thing that John wants to make sure of before closing the letter is that Gaius hears from the friends at Ephesus and that the friends with Gaius hear from John. John tells Gaius, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. John doesn't introduce them. He just says friends. Gaius knows who they are. And this is the only time in the New Testament where fellow Christians are called friends. These are fellow believers who desire to be together, who long to enjoy one another's company. Then John asks that Gaius would do the same for him. Greet the friends for me, Gaius, and make sure to greet them by name. And the construction of this preposition, it can actually carry the idea of doing this name by name. So John, John tells Gaius, I want you to greet each one of the friends for me, and I want you to do it individually, name by name. What a beautiful picture of community. See, as believers, we should relish the opportunities that we have to live in community with one another. We are one another's gospel inheritance. We are literally gifts given from God to one another. We are fellow citizens and members of God's household. And it is through this community that we comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ and are filled up to all the fullness of God. The community of believers is a web of deep friendships that stand ready to minister the love of God in Christ to one another whenever the need arises. Guys, the, the gospel is a meal that must be eaten together. We cannot feast on the gospel alone. The more we embrace the reality that you have a significant role to play in my life and that I have a significant role to play in yours, the more fully we experience shalom that comes from the gospel. Before we got into this letter, I asked you a question. How often do you step back and consider what God desires for your life? My prayer is that after seeing the heart of the apostle poured out in the desires that he has for Gaius and for every believer, you will be helped in not only the desires you should have for others, but the kind of desires you should have for your own life. See, John desires that we would be reminded of our position in the Father. He desires that we would embody the gospel in our whole lives. John also desires that we be humble. He desires that we would mimic what is good, and he desires that we 
would experience peace and community with one another. But there is one component within all of these desires that must be addressed. All of these desires from John are for believers. John was writing to Gaius, a beloved child of God. For those of you who are sitting here or listening in who have not placed their faith in Christ, these desires are not for you. But John, along with the other writers of Scripture, do have a desire for you, and that is that you would be saved. John, in giving us the entire purpose of writing his gospel, says this in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Apostle Paul desires that you would be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, where he says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The apostle Peter shares the desire of the Lord for you in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient for you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I implore those of you that are here that have not placed your faith in Christ to look to him and see the salvation that is offered. Accept the pardon that is available through the blood of Christ. And then, with the peace that is found in being justified, live out these desires from John. But for those who have placed their faith in Christ, continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and do not move away from the hope of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself moment by moment. Ponder the person and work of Christ. Pray about it. Sing about it. Come to the table and feed on it. The good news of salvation contains everything that we need to see how the heart of God is bent towards us. When we are reminded of the great love with which God loves us, we can then love God and others. The embodied gospel, it flows out in love only because we have been loved by God. And one that is filled to the fullness of God has no room for pride to take root and grow. One who is saturated in the glory of the Lord is not only transformed, but visibly has pieces 
of God's glory attached to them. And as a result, they become those that should be mimicked. And all of these realities, guys, they take place right here in our community with the people in this room. It is here that we most fully experience the love of God in Christ as we encourage one another with the hope of the gospel. And in so doing, we experience true shalom. You know, it's pretty incredible. You think about everything those snowplow parents tried to do for their kids. The obstacles they tried to remove in order that their kids would have the best. And it only made things worse. But our Heavenly Father sent His Son to remove the record of debt that stood against us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? The perfect snowplow parent. (laughs) Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen? Why don't we pray? Oh God, what can we say to such immense wonder found in the gospel? What response can we give for the display of love towards us in Christ? We cry out with Paul, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Lord, we pray that as we meditate on the riches we have in Christ, our desire, our desires would be reshaped and our lives transformed. And that you would receive the glory and the honor as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.